Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today it's great to be speaking again to Tom Gailey, author of the book America's Post-Christian Apocalypse, How Secular Modernism Marginalised Christianity and the Peril of Leaving God Behind at the End of the Age. And uh, as many of you will know, Tom has joined us for two interviews before, and I think this will be the final one that we're going to be looking at the subject matter of uh, this particular book. Um, So, Tom, good to be speaking to you again. How are you doing? Good, Julian. Thank you for having me again. Well, great. I'm going to say the last chat about your book is going to be this interview, I'm quite sure, because I don't think we need to go on that much longer with this one. We have lots and lots no. of fascinating information, though, that's attached and uh, concerned with your book. Thank you. Um, but you have another one in the writing, don't you? Um, how's that going? I'm probably about 40% done on that one. Um, mm-hmm. I think I've got seven chapters done now. Uh-huh. Writing, you never know where it's going to end up, but I'm, I think I'm almost halfway done with it. So that's on uh, transhumanism. Oh, transhumanism, yeah. yeah. Is it just transhumanism or how it relates to uh, well, the Bible or something like that? Yeah, because mm-hmm. it, it's tentatively called transhumanism AI, which is artificial intelligence and the apocalypse. So, yeah, I'll definitely be looking at it from a biblical worldview, mm. but I'm trying to give a more of a insider view. I do a lot of quotes because I want the transhumanists to speak for themselves. So it's not just my perspective on it, you know, but ultimately, yeah, I will be um, showing what it looks like in light of a Christian worldview mm. and where it's heading as far as the end time scenarios go. Yeah. And will you be looking at it also from the point of view of its own, at least implied spirituality as well? Oh, Absolutely. Because the more radical version of transhumanism thinks they're going to affect their own salvation through uh, mind uploading and whatnot, you know. Yes. So it should be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I very much look forward to reading that Thank and you. chatting to you about it when you do actually publish it. So um, we're going to be looking at the ending of your book today, your first book. And uh, in the first interview, we looked at the question of truth, what that actually means and the uh, the ways in which the cultures we live in, certainly in Western countries like the US and the UK, um, how we've, we've redefined truth to mean something 
subjective. So something like truth means what's true for you, what's true for me, rather than absolute truth, plus the fact that our cultures have become increasingly politically correct and we've embraced radical postmodernism in certain areas of our thought and lives. That was our first interview. And then in the next interview, we looked at various philosophical and theological trends that helped to lead us towards that state of affairs where we seem to be these days. I do encourage people to go back actually and listen to those. They're actually very different interviews. So if you heard interview number one with Tom Gailey and you didn't listen to number two because you thought, oh, well, that'll be the same sort of thing all over again, it wasn't. So please do go back and catch up on that particular interview. So today we're going to be looking, as I say, at the last part of the book where you argue that all this relativism, political correctness, etc. is really putting us in an increasingly dangerous situation, spiritually speaking, because it gives us the wrong mindset to cope with what you think is going to be very difficult times coming in the future. Now, in the book, you refer to that difficult future in terms of the new world order. And that's something that we've talked a lot about here on the programme. And I'm going to have something to say about that in a minute, but I'll hold off on what I want to say there. Um, What do you mean by the new world order because you use that phrase quite a lot of the time and i know it's diff- i'm not really asking for a definition <laughs> um i'm asking you really to say something about the kind of ideas you have in mind when you use that phrase what sort of things you think are shaping up that are sort of caught by that umbrella term the new world order well i think it's going to be a one world government sooner or later that will be run by globalists I can go into what the different globalists or whatever, if you want me to go into that a little bit, or, oh, I think it's going to go down, if you want me to do that. Yeah, this is the trouble with this kind of thing, isn't it? And In fact, I'll, go, I'll say straight away, actually, what I was holding off on there. No, go ahead. Some people say that this is meaningless. <laughs> I've heard people quite recently actually say that the term new world order doesn't actually mean anything because it's, you know, is it a group of people? Is it a philosophical trend? Is it in secret? Is it, you know, what does it actually mean? Because if it means so many things to different people, then it's not really a meaningful term. I don't actually agree with that. I think that's wrong. It is. Um, I think it is meaningful, but it isn't precise. No. But, you know, one of the things about language is that there are different degrees of precision. And the phrase, I think, is trying to, as you hinted at there, I think it's trying to catch the general idea of an anti-democratic global government or global governance that seems to be shaping up. You know, one of the things that I've been trying to do here at The Mind Renewed in the New World Order series is to try to get some more precision about what that term means because there is this sort of web of ideas out there on the internet and it's difficult to pin it down. And so I've tried to do that inductively, as it were, by speaking to various knowledgeable people. They've got different angles on what this global governance might mean. I've been trying to build up a helpful picture. So if it was meaningless, then I wouldn't be able to do that. You know, that's the point I'm trying to make. I think there's something definite to be explored here. Right. Why don't I read a few quotes right from the people themselves? Because that will tell you what they are shooting for, and it also will dismiss this notion that this is just a nebulous concept, you know, that we're just making this up, you know, or like you said, inductively, we're coming to the wrong conclusions, that there really is no New World Order. So if I read a couple of quotes. Mm -hmm. Let's do that. Okay. So former Harvard professor Carol Quigley, um, he wrote that famous book, uh, Tragedy and Hope, I believe it was. Um, He says, quote, their aim is nothing less than to create a world system of financial control and private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. 
The system was to be controlled in a feudalistic fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences, end quote. Another one from David Rockefeller. This was leaked by two French reporters at their Bilderberg meeting. This is back in 91. He says, we are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subjected to the lights of publicity during those years. But the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. And then he goes on to say the supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely preferable to the national autodetermination practice in past centuries. So again, you see world government, central banks, uh, world financial system in play there. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to say something about that David Rockefeller quote that you have there. That's one which I have actually tried to source unsuccessfully. So I am actually skeptical as to whether he said that. Now, he may have done, but I can't source it. I have tried, and other people have tried as well. Yep. But nevertheless, it's one of those things where it's the ipsissima vox, as it were, if you use a sort of uh, theological term there. It captures the voice, because in his memoirs, he does actually say something along those lines, doesn't he? Exactly. Right. Let me read that one. Quote, For more than a century, ideological extremists at either end of the political spectrum have seized upon a well-publicized incidence such as my encounter with Castro to attack the Rockefeller family for the inordinate influence we wield over American political and economic institutions. Some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family and me as co-internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated political and economic structure one world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty, and I'm proud of it, end quote. <laughs> I mean, you can't get any clear of that. It's right in his memoirs, right? Now, we quoted just Rockefeller, but, I mean, other people, um, okay, Larry McDonald, he was a uh, congressman, 1975. He says, money alone is not enough to quench the thirst and lusts of the super rich. Instead, many of them use their vast wealth and the influence such riches give them to achieve even more power power on a worldwide scale, the drive of the Rockefellers and their allies to create a one-world government combining supercapitalism and communism under the same tent, all under their control. I am convinced there is such a plot, international in scope, generations old in planning, and incredibly evil in intent, end quote. Well, as I say, we have actually looked quite a lot at this particular issue. And, you know, I do agree with the kind of general thing that you're sketching there. And you do mention this in the book quite a bit. But the reason why you do really is because you're trying to say to us that we are we are going to be ill-equipped for this situation that's shaping up. And it has to do with what you were saying in the previous interview. So what I'd like you to do, if you could, is to connect the way that we think in the world today and how that is a problem for what you see shaping up. Well, I think the biggest problem is that we've lost our notion of truth. And these people, the global elites, whether you want to think that they're doing things in secret or whether they're doing them right out in the open, we are going to be open to deception. We will be not prepared for what is coming down the pike. Now, the alternative media, like with your program and others, people are awake. They know what's going on with these folks, but the average person really doesn't. You know, we've lost, you know, truth is relativized, morals are relativized, politically correct tolerance. We're basically living in a secular worldview now. There's explicit atheism, God does not exist, or practical atheism, God can be ignored. And so basically with God safely out of the way, 
we're going to be vulnerable to lies and deception. And I think it's going to make us more vulnerable to this new world order if we're not awake to it. And from a Christian perspective, I think it's going to end up tying in with biblical eschatology. We can get into that a little later or, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that because there's some really interesting and important issues that connect with eschatology. Um I suppose, in a sense, the whole thing is eschatology. Uh, yeah, really, exactly. You know, wh- where are we going, essentially? And this could be looked at in a number of different ways. And I suppose what I wanted to do was to boil down some of the things you say into some categories, because it is such a complex web of ideas. And I wanted to ask you about the ideology or ideologies of the New World Order, or those people who seem to be behind these kinds of moves. Now, in the book, you talk about these goals as being sort of communistic and yet somehow fascistic at the same time. I think you've already said that, actually, in one of your sentences a minute ago. To many people, that would seem to be contradiction. How do you understand how those two things fit together? Well, they want to end up having a one-world totalitarian government. So it'll be some type of socialism. It'll be some type of communo-fascist economic political system. Uh, Thomas Sowell from Stanford has pointed out that there's a lot more in common between communism and fascism than people think. Communism is a form of socialism with an international focus. Fascism is also a type of socialism, but with a national focus. So, for example, Benito Mussolini defined fascism as national socialism. So when you start to see big banks that are in bed with uh, the government, like large corporations, you're witnessing creeping fascism because um, fascism allows corporations to stay intact as long as the government has control of them. Um, the Marxism part, you have the proletariat, which is the propertyless class rising up to overthrow the bourgeoisie. That's what people commonly think of as communism, but that's not what the global elites have in mind. Uh, They have in mind um, a ruling elite that would end up taking all the goods and services for themselves and basically enslaving the rest of us in their totalitarian rule. That's what they're aiming for. If you just look at the Communist Manifesto, for example, you'll get a good idea of where these global elites want to take us. It's an abolition of private property, centralization of credit in the hands of the state, a national bank, uh, free education, abolishment of all countries and nationalities. And then doing away with eternal truths, as well as doing away with all religion and morality. And they certainly would like to see the family disappear, too. So... Yeah, I think reading the Communist Manifesto is a real education, actually. I think everybody should read that, uh, because it's it's one of those weird experiences, in in my opinion. You read it so far, and you think, yeah, some of these ideas sound okay, and then suddenly you hit upon a sentence, you think, good Lord, like you're saying, you know, a redefinition of the family, and essentially the state taking over family functions, and it suddenly hits you as, this is really subversive and unpleasant, actually. Um, So, when I was reading through your book, I kept on thinking of the work of Pat Wood, actually, and what he he talks about uh, technocracy. Right. And a lot of what you say fits with the vision of technocracy that Pat Wood talks about. And the curious thing about this is you don't, I don't know whether you use that word ever in the book, but it's not an idea that you really run with at any point in the book. And the strange thing is, Martin Erdman had a similar kind of experience with this, and then he wrote a whole book. And then somebody said to him, actually, what you've written about is technocracy. And initially he thought, no, no, I haven't. But then when he went he went back and, and thought about what he'd written, he thought, oh, yes, in fact, that's what I was talking about all along. So I don't know, actually, whether you feel that you have, in some sense, talked about this without realizing it. <laughs> I, I mean, you're right. To a certain extent, it's just that I would say that as of right now, that's just one facet. 
it may end up absorbing everything else into it sooner or later. For example, if we moved on to transhumanism, we could end up having everything else being absorbed into that, into an artificial intelligence where it runs everything or the global elites use that. Yeah, I mean, I've got Pat Wood's book right in front of me right now, so I, I would recommend that book. And there's another one I read called The Ascendancy. I, actually, I read this after I wrote my book. It's called The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, and I would recommend that too. That's by Collins. They describe what you're talking about here. I just pulled this up. It's uh, another quote from Carol Quigley again. He says, quote, technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. For the first time in human history, it will be done as a scientific technical engineering problem. So basically, technocracy uh, was coined in 1919 by a gentleman named W.H. Smith, and it refers to a system of government ruled by the so-called experts or particularly scientists. So I think with the rise of artificial intelligence, I would uh, totally agree with you. And I, I think that it could end up, you know, becoming more of a technocracy. Right now, I would just say that's one tentacle of it. The other thing that I had about methodology here, and again, you talk about it quite a bit, it's the uh, what's often called the problem reaction solution method, um, which I think is a kind of distillation or related to the Hegelian triangle, you know, thesis, antithesis and synthesis kind of idea. But it's been popularly expressed in this way, problem, reaction, solutions. So you either create or you opportunistically use a problem and then there's a reaction to that and then you come in and provide the solution because you either created or made use of the problem in the first place. Um, so you talk about a number of different things that may be examples of this. Do you want to talk about how certain elites think this is a good way of going about things? Yeah, well, they basically, they don't want a good crisis to go to waste. I don't know if I actually specifically use the Hegelian dialectic. Uh, I can't remember because I know that's real popular in, in the alt media, but I know definitely they're going to use some type of crisis mm. to try to head us into and, and corral us into the new world order. And, and in essence, you're right. It is kind of the Hegelian dialectic. Yes, I mean, I wasn't trying to say that that's what Hegel had, you know, exactly. he that's behind this idea. I think it's, an, it's a kind of metaphor almost that people have seen it is. That, that there is this triangle. I mean, even Hegel himself didn't talk in terms of thesis. And this, no. is, you know, this is something that's been got from his work by people thinking about his method. So it's a reflection that's there. It is. That's why I think I was hesitant to use it in my book. I don't think I did because... I mean, I see everybody in the alt media using that, but like you said, I don't think he would specifically, that's not why he came up with it. I think somebody extrapolated that from his thoughts, you know, but sure. certainly it does fit. I'm not going to argue with that if someone said this is the way they do it. I just see it as either when a crisis happens, they're going to take advantage of it. Okay, like these shootings that we have over here. The first thing you see the next day is they're going to try to take away our guns. They have to have gun legislation or they contrive crises like 9-11, which, you know, as I said in my book, I didn't want to make a big deal of it, but, you know, I basically said they allowed that to happen. How far down the rabbit hole, whether they contrived it, they probably did. And I said, it's a rogue portion of our government, a rogue element in our government that allowed that to happen or contrived it. But they're going to use a crisis, whether it's a false flag or a genuine crisis to try to corral us into getting what they accomplished. And I used Bezmenov in my book because most people are not familiar with him. And I thought it was interesting that he looked at four stages 
of how the Russian KGB was going to try to take down the United States. Interestingly, the second one was destabilization. Once a country is destabilized, it's ripe for a crisis. So they want to try to destabilize it either morally or any way that they can to try to bring about a crisis. And then when the crisis number three stage happens, traditional structures collapse. And again, so this would tie in with your 9-11. Society can't function productively. Now, of course, we bounce back from 9-11. But if you had like a engineered pandemic or civil war or nuclear strike, this is the kind of thing that they're going to use because people then are looking for a savior. So you can have a government declaring martial law. People will give up their rights for security. And that's what these globalists are hoping for, because this will, again, lead us all towards this new world order. You know, we don't want to have nation states. We want to have peace and security, which is not coincidental that the Bible talks about that when they're saying peace and security. So I see that the crises is something that they're going to try to use to bring in their system. Let's look at what they did in Germany and compare with today. The Reichstag fire is much like 9-11. The Reichstag fire was a contrived crisis. And Goring then said Germany was on war footing. And that would be parallel with our war on terror over here. So then because Germany was on war footing, their constitution needed to be changed. So they had this enabling act, which allowed Hitler to come into office. And Hitler said, I am not a dictator. I've only simplified democracy. That's similar to our Patriot Act, where we've lost some of our rights over here. And it it was ridiculous. The bill was passed before anybody even read it. Then they had concentration camps, which parallels our FEMA camps that will be set up. So basically, they use a crisis to try to corral people into their new world order. And that's how I see some of that possibly happening They'll have a crisis, and people will give up their rights for peace and security. And I I really think this is what will happen down the line. Hmm. Let's say you have an economic collapse. Banks failing and countries failing, you know, they'll maybe have to go to one currency, you know, a world currency, SDR. That would start moving you toward a a one world government, right? If you had wars, well, we need to stop fighting. Let's – we don't want national boundaries anymore. We all got to be on the same page. Or you have an economic collapse, well, we'll all have one currency – It's moving us toward a one world whatever, political system, economic system. You can see these things start to happen. And certainly a war, a world war could do that too. Sort of humanistically speaking, it seems as if that's the the way things have to go. (laughs) Right. I often think of this as being more philosophical than about sort of secret societies. I'm not saying those things don't exist, but I tend to think of it more as a a major philosophical trend that is very humanistic and very historicist, really. The idea that history has a kind of motion to it. There's an inevitability that the world must eventually go in this direction so that, you know, the world can be controlled in, in the best possible way. Otherwise, how can we look after? to the whole world environment you know how can we make sure that people are not suffering in poverty all around the world we have to have a a global authority to do this it seems to make humanistic sense and i keep using the word humanist not because i'm against humanists but because there is in this vision no room for the transcendent right and that of course is going to take us into a, a more spiritual discussion that we're going to have here because i mean one of the things that you say is that there's a great irony to all of this, that those who are moving according to this vision that they have, however that particular complexion of the vision is for them, whether it's what we might think of as an altruistic vision or a a very selfish vision of world government, there is an irony 
in that from a Christian point of view, these people are actually going to be creating an infrastructure for the Antichrist to come on the scene. And the majority of these people are not going to be aware of that. No. <laughs> um, but that's what they're going to be doing. So there are loads of things, actually, to go over here about this. I mean, some Christians would even question whether this is a, a right way of looking at this. Um, let me ask you to give us your basic idea of who or what you think the Antichrist might be in the future and how whatever world government might play into that situation. Let's just use war as an example. You have a world war, and this man that the Bible talks about, the man of sin, he's going to be a deceiver. So he comes along, he pops up, maybe he's part of the UN, whatever. And he says he's going to solve problems. He gets peace treaties going, and he gets you know the world to stop, at least for some time, having war. People are going to be clamoring. You know, go back to Bez Menoff a second. He said after the crisis, and he said people are going to be looking for a savior. So this man of sin, this Antichrist, actually like in Revelation 13, the Bible talks about as, as the beast. Mm-hmm. I think he will probably consolidate everything politically, economically, militarily, and religiously. And he will head this New World Order, whether he thinks he's the head of it or not. He'll know what he's doing. And this New World Order, as you said, I totally agree with you. Even if you don't want to look at it like it's secret societies and stuff, I think they do play a large part in it. But I also totally agree with you that it's so sensationalized in the alt media a lot of times that it's really distracting from what from just scholarship and what actually is going to take place here. You know, we, we really want to have a biblical worldview. We got to make sure it's grounded in that and not using today's headlines and then trying to force those into scripture. Nobody knows how this is going to play out. And that's why I just presented maybe some scenarios in my book. And I said in my book, as we get closer to the end of the age, we'll have a better idea how this is going to go. I totally agree with you there. It is often approached as if it's clear. And it really isn't. Oh, my gosh, no. In fact, the not only is the identity of the Antichrist not clear, but the nature of the Antichrist is not clear. And I think you'll probably want to say something about that uh, in a bit, whether we're even talking about a human being there. I mean, people have different views about that. And whether the global governance that we're talking about is going to be that particular form of global governance that will provide the infrastructure for that figure to come on the scene we don't know it may be that we will actually have some form of global governance say in i don't know 100 years from now 50 years from now and then that all unravels and then there's a different cycle of historical events and then something else comes on the scene later and there's another form of global right. go- you know what i mean we, we really don't know no. um, but again i'm going to come back to that point where people say well therefore it's meaningless no it's not no, because it's not. we're having this conversation and there are fixed nodes in our conversation and particularly from a biblical point of view there is the fixed node of the written text, which does point in these directions. Um, So let's pin this down a little bit more because we have to deal with the question of whether the Antichrist is actually a character that will come on the scene. Because some people will say, well, maybe what the Bible is talking about here is a system in place of God. Let's look at the word itself. Antichrist means against the Messiah, or it can also mean in place of the Messiah has both senses to that. Maybe it's a system, a world system that is opposed to God, that's sort of in place of God. Um, why do you think it's going to be a character, a human being or a person? Well, in Second Thessalonians, it talks about a person who's going to do the abomination of desolation. It says, 
let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin reveal the son of perdition who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God that certainly points to the fact that it's a person when you look at Revelation 13 there's a Greek word auto you can interpret it either as him or as it so depending on what translation you have you can make a case that the beast is going to be an it or a him um, I'll just read a couple of verses here and see what we get out of it. And they worshiped the dragon. This is uh, Revelation 13:4, for he had given authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise its authority for 42 months. It's opened its mouth, uttered blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. And authority was given it over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Now, there's a verse that shows you that it's going to be a worldwide phenomenon, that it's not just going to be a localized thing. Where some some writers I know that mm. uh, believe that in the Muslim Antichrist, they've come out, and I've tried to refute that in my book. They said, well, it's just going to be a local phenomenon. It doesn't mean he has to control the world. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Yes, I agree with that. That doesn't seem to be a fair reading of the text, really. Um, it's interesting that you say it comes up instead of he yeah, in this translation, the ESV, it does. But again, you can translate that it, the King James translates it him. Right. I'll tell you what, one of the studies I'm going to do for myself is I want to find out exactly what this beast is. And again, we both agree, it's very difficult to tell now. And I'll tell you another thing that's really I want to study a lot, and that is trying to figure out what this image is. Because it talks so much in Revelation 13, where I just read from, about this image. And when you think about it, humans are made in God's image. Okay, mm. and Antichrist is always trying to imitate or pervert what God did. Um, Thou shall not have any graven images, right? So there's something going on with this image. I don't know if it's going to be a holographic image, but there's something going on with this image besides this beast. I'm, I'm with you. It, you know, you can read this, and sometimes you look at it as like, is this going to be a beast system? Yeah. Is this going to be some type of totalitarian system? But definitely, it's going to be a person. It could be both, you know? Yeah, I think when you dovetail it in with some of the other data, right. I mean, you looked at the Second Thessalonians reference there, didn't you, where Paul talks about the man of lawlessness, it's the the man of sin is revealed. Yeah. Um, I believe the Greek there is anthropos, which is man. Right. <laughs> it's not an it there. So exactly. So if you think it's talking about the same thing, and I do think it's talking about the same thing there, there's the same kind of tradition that's being built up and talked about in different ways, one in a letter and one in this apocalyptic literature, then it looks like it's going to be a human being. Although... Maybe a transhumanist thing would sort of augment that or something, but nevertheless, it looks like it's going to be essentially a human being who comes on the scene. And the thought I had immediately about the beast, this is in Revelation. Um, this is taking imagery, is it not, from the book of Daniel. So is the it referring to the imagery? <laughs> you know, if you're talking about a beast, then you've yeah, got like to be... Yeah, Yeah, so exactly. like you'd, if you talk about a lion, you'd say it, you wouldn't say it. He, would you know, or you're talking about an elephant, you'd say it. I mean, traditionally in English language, that's how you, you speak of these things. Um, so right. referring to the beast as an it may not actually mean it's impersonal at all. So, okay, you've touched on why it would be a world rule. This is coming from Revelation 13. Is that the one that you... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. In Revelation 13, it says, okay, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell 
unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast and number his name. Let me just go over one thing real quick. Just to, mm. I think when I was refuting the idea that it's only going to be a local phenomenon, if you look down in Revelation 14, 6, it says, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language and people. So John is using, you know, he uses this phrase over and over in the book of Revelation, every nation, tribe, language, and people. And then when you look back, say 10 or 15 verses back in Revelation 13, it says all authority was given it or him over every tribe and people and language and nation. I mean, if this angel is going to be proclaiming the gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people, of course, God is going to share the gospel with the whole entire world. He's not just going to do it locally. So in other words, if you're going to use the language that John uses here of every nation, tribe, language, and people, then you go back to what the beast authority is given over every tribe, people, language, and nation. You know that he's going to have authority over everything. And it also connects, doesn't it, back to Daniel 7, where there's that vision of the Son of Man who comes before the Ancient of Days, which is another way of referring to God. So the, the Son of Man comes before God, and Jesus himself identified himself as the Son of Man. And in Daniel's vision, the nations of the world are given to the Son of Man. Okay. And here you have the Antichrist, the alternative to the Christ, right. also having rule in some sense. Exactly. Well, yeah, he will have. I mean, he's going to probably, like I said, consolidate everything military, economic, political, and spiritual. But, you know, everybody's familiar with this because, you know, you can't buy or sell unless you have the mark. So it's going to be a worldwide phenomenon. You know, the burden of proof would have to be on somebody who said it's it's not going to be, it's just going to be a local phenomenon. It's not. And, you know, when you see how everything's consolidated, like we just talked about before, sooner or later, I do believe there's going to be, uh, they're putting it off. But all these countries are, what, we're just printing money. It's all debt. There's going to be an economic collapse or at least a super disruption at some point in the world economy because everything's so tied together now. I mean, just look at what's happened in 50 years. 50 years ago, you didn't have credit cards. You didn't have credit cards until like, what, the 80s, maybe mid-70s. And now everything's moving already toward a cashless society. And now they got a chip in these cards. you you got to be kidding me. I'm sure that's just coincidence, right? Mm. Like I tell everybody when I say I'm going to use the Antichrist card. So in other words, (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean? I, I really do. I've said this on a number of interviews. I really do think this is something that we need to take seriously. I don't. Think yes. Prese- I don't think, however, we should present it as gospel. No, no, no. This is definitely how it's going to shape up. How it's going to go down. But it's a scenario. Yes, it's a scenario, and yes. it, we should take it seriously. But there is the temptation with some people to say, "Ah, well, come on, that's just ridiculous," and, and right. not even begin to consider that these things could play out in that way. And I think we need to that's sort right. of tread this middle way somehow. It's it's a difficult balance. But what does keep awake? What does watch mean? You know, in the terms of looking at the signs of the times right it doesn't mean you're supposed to look at the sign and say that's definitely it surely it means to be no. alert and that, i think that's what we're calling for i totally agree with you mm. we just we're watching stuff unfold we don't want to force those yes. things which i see a lot of happening and i'll tell you that's another reason i like being on your show it's scholarly it's level-headed there's so much going on in the alt media now oh you know seventh trumpet judgment media is going to hit the planet september 23rd um, with, you know, a YouTube video goes up with 15 exclamation points after it, you know. I mean... And 100,000 hits. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. These people have like hundreds of thousands. Yeah, yeah. They have 100,000 subscribers. Mm. You know, a verse came into my head yesterday, I got to tell you, and it says, you know, in the latter days, they'll have they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears 
and they'll turn away from the, the ears from the truth and turn unto fables. Now, I'm not going to say that specifically referring to these people, but it did come into my head because that's what they're doing. They're just It's one sensational thing after the next. We have to try to make sure that we don't force today's events, which is what just what we're doing now. We're, not, we're trying not to force today's events into Scripture, but on the other hand, being responsible and seeing what Scripture says. So those for the skeptics out there and say, like what you just said, well, you know, oh, come on, this is all, you know, hooey, this is ridiculous. Well, then explain to me how someone who wrote this 2,000 years ago talked about a, what looks to be a cashless society when you can clearly see this is where we're heading. And by the way, they don't want us to use cash because you can remain anonymous when you use cash. If everything's plugged into a system where you have to use a credit card, they're going to know every single thing you bought and sold, and it takes away your freedom. But leaving that aside, how did this writer, John, was it just a lucky guess that you're not going to be able to buy and sell without a mark? And then you see these RFID chips, which, again, Julie and I are not saying that this is exactly the way this can go down. But it's something to look at. You've got to be responsible and at least look at it. And, and, and for the skeptics out there, say, how can this be coincidence? How could this man have written this 2,000 years ago? Yes. You know, I agree with you. And I think this is – I think I've talked to Andy Jennings about this, actually, that this gives us an opportunity to say, look, if this part of the scripture is real, then – Perhaps we should look at the rest of it. Um, that's right. And, and not treat it in a kind of Nostradamus way and say, oh, that's exactly right. Interesting little prophecy here, and it's got nothing to do with the rest of Scripture because, of course, the whole thing is a network of ideas. It's integration. In it is, absolutely. Um, and the thing of it is, I think that as we go on, like when I was taking apologetics and I studied apologetics, and I, well, I still do. I hope I'm, uh, you know, apologist in some way, shape, or form. Hmm. You looked at all the different arguments, the cosmological, all this stuff. But I really believe that as we move forward and get closer to the end time, our biggest apologetic is going to be the prophecy of Scripture itself. Because you can clearly see this stuff unfolding. And like you just said, I mean, you've got to look at this. How could this just be coincidental? It's not. And if you can look at this with an open mind and say, boy, that there is seem to be something to this, then you might want to look at other things, you know like Jesus' death and resurrection and, and see God's whole redemptive plan here, you know? Yeah, it's mundane things like yeah, that. Yeah, just mundane things like, you know, Jesus' death and resurrection. That's why I always try to point people to it, you know. And if there's any of you out on, that are sitting on the fence out there, just what Julie and I do. I mean, look at the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Just start there. Because if he really was literally risen from the dead, then he was who he says he was. And the Bible is a historical book that explains God's redemptive plan. And he tells us how it's going to end here. This is what's going to happen. And now you can start to see this happening. God is getting ready to wrap this up. And, I, and Julie and I think you agree with me. We, we both agree. You know, we can't get all hyper. Oh, this is going to happen. Like, oh, the, you know, oh, this is all going to go down in the next couple of years. And no, this could go 50, 60, 70 years. I don't know how long. I, my personal opinion, and I said it in my book, is I think we've got at least a generation or two to go. I think the technology is going to be unbelievable at the end of the age. But I could be wrong. There's too much that needs to unfold. Yes. I mean, if, if we take the prophecies that point in the direction of, say, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, and I'm not saying that's necessarily true, but if that is the case, right. then that's, that's going right. to take quite a long time. I mean, Herod's temple took yeah. long enough to create. And okay, we've got modern technology, etc. But think about all the political machinations that would need to take place and the uh, culture that would need to change for something like that to happen. It's going to be a long yeah. time. Um, so I, I, I do agree with you. But let's, if we're looking at this, we're trying to be level-headed about this, then we need to take on board some other 
objections that could be raised. Let's say um, some would say, okay, there's this great tribulation that many Christians talk about that uh, people might have to live through, but not Christians, because true Christians will be taken out of this situation before the great tribulation, or at least before it becomes too bad in what's often called the rapture. Now, in the book, you touch on this, and you disagree with that, don't you? Do you want to explain why? Sure. I was brought up, well, what we were taught is there's going to be a seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week, and we will be raptured out before that happens, that God will not put us through that. That's basically still the majority view, vast majority view in evangelicalism, and while I do believe in the seven-year period, I do believe in Daniel's 70th week, I don't believe that we are going to be raptured out before that. Now, again, I'll say I was brought up in a pre-trib church. My seminary that I went to was pre-trib, and we were told to write a paper on the timing of the rapture. And I remember this just like I'm talking to you right now. I literally chuckled to myself and I thought, yeah, right. What an exercise in futility. Like I'm going to come out with any position other than pre-trib. I assumed everybody did their homework on this. So I knew I was going to come out pre-trib. So I started working on my paper. And really, you didn't have Amazon back there. So there wasn't a whole lot of books you could get. There really wasn't that many books out there. So I looked at one that had the three positions, you know, pre, mid, and post. And unless you really have an idea of what's going on, you can't really make heads or tails of it. So I got really frustrated after the first day. And so I just scrapped everything I had and I started the next day. And I said, okay, what does everybody agree on? And this is how I came to realize that the pre-trib rapture is wrong. Everybody agrees that there's a seven-year period. Okay. As far as this future eschatology, there's a seven-year Dan- – it's called – It's not. by the way, it's not called the tribulation. It's called Daniel's 70th week. So you've got a seven-year period. But it is a period of tribulation, of, of, of suffering. Yes, that's right. Good point. Good point. Yeah, I don't want to diminish that. But the question is, pre-tribbers think it's all God's wrath that time, and I'm going to show why that's wrong. Okay, but, just, just before you do that, let, go ahead. for those who are not familiar with this terminology, and I want to keep this simple because I find all this rather mind-boggling, to be honest, because I haven't really been brought up in this kind of tradition, really. Um, it's hardly ever talked about in the church that I attend. Um, so we have the tribulation, or we might call it that anyway, this period. No, that's right. It sounds quite a short period in which there will be great suffering. Um, but the pre-trib idea then is that pre, that is before, this suffering takes place, which is suffering across the whole globe, before that happens, there is going to be this thing called the rapture. That's why it's called the pre-trib. And the rapture is the idea that God takes out of the world all those who are truly following him. So we might connect that with, say, uh, in Matthew's gospel, we have here Matthew 24, 40, where Jesus says, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left behind. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left behind. Okay, it's, it's using the language of the time, talking about people working, you know, in the fields and things. But, you know, I'm sure we could we could easily bring that up to date. You know, somebody will be uh, working at the desk or using a computer. One will be right. taken, one will be left behind. Okay, and so the idea that the true followers of Christ are going to be taken out of that situation, and then the tribulation will happen. That's the pre-trib position. So now explain why you think that that's wrong. Well, I do agree with pre-tribbers that we will be taken out before God's wrath. But the problem with the pre-trib position 
is, like I said, envision the seven-year period. And what starts the seven-year period, and how do you know that when it starts, is that the Antichrist signs a pact with Israel, a peace treaty, or in the Old Testament it's called the covenant with death. And then envision just one more thing. In the middle of that seven-year period, there's the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist, which we talked about before, will go in, stop the sacrifices that he allowed Israel to carry on with the rebuilt temple, and he's going to go in and desecrate that. That absolutely, without a doubt, happens in the middle of the week. Everybody agrees on those points. Let's just, another one of these points of uh, clarity. Uh, The abomination that causes desolation. This is a phrase that's used in a number of places in the Bible, and it refers to something like bringing in something that's uh, ritually unclean into a temple situation. Mm -hmm. So you, you might have the invader Antiochus IV, between the Old and the New Testament, he comes in and uh, I believe he sets up, a, is it a statue of Zeus or something in the temple? So that's, of course, from a Jewish perspective, absolutely no, no. You know, you don't bring an idol in into the temple. Right. Um, or in AD 70, I believe the Romans brought their ensigns into the temple area as well. So these will be abominations that cause desolation. That's what the phrase means, something like that. But we're looking here towards something in the future where that happens and this character does something like that, but on a grand scale. Right. It'll be what we talked about in Second Thessalonians. Here's what changed my mind on it. Mm-hmm. The day of the Lord, it's all over the Old Testament, what it's going to be. So in Joel, um, I will show wonders in heavens on earth, blood, fire, and smoke, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. It's all over the Old Testament. It's the same basic thing every single time. You got the sun darkened, mood turned to blood, and so on. You go over to Matthew, okay? So Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, sun will be darkened, moon not give its light, stars fall from heaven, powers of heaven will be shaken. You go to Revelation 6. I don't have Revelation 6 in front of me, but it's the same exact terminology so you know what the day of the Lord is. Right. Um, it's, it's a judgment. It's like a catchphrase almost, isn't it? Is it? Now we're talking about serious judgment. Right. It's going to be cataclysmic judgment of God on the planet. So when he opened the six, this is uh, Revelation 6, 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, it was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to heaven as the fig tree shed its winter fruit. All three are describing the same thing. The day of the Lord, which is God's judgment on unbelievers. Now, this is what I was having a problem with when I wrote this paper, because the day of the Lord is inextricably intertwined with the rapture. Um, in Second Thessalonians, that's the verses that actually destroy the pre-trib position. Let's just look at that for real quick here. This is what's so interesting. When Paul wrote this, he wrote the entire letter of Second Thessalonians because the Thessalonians thought that they had missed the rapture, or they thought at least that they were going to they were entering the tribulation period, and they thought they missed the rapture. And he wrote the entire letter to try to comfort them. And when you're doing a proper hermeneutic, you've got to understand what was the author's intent. Well, the author's intent was he was trying to correct them because they were panicking. They thought they were entering the tribulation. They thought they had missed the rapture. So look what he says here. He says now concerning. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the parousia in the Greek, okay, so that's Jesus returning, and are being gathered together to him. That's the rapture. So you have the coming of the Lord, that's the, the now concerning the coming of our Lord, that's the day of the Lord that we just read the three scriptures on, 
and are being gathered together in him. So he's connecting those two things together. The day of the Lord and the rapture. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or letter, seeming to be for us. That the effect of the day of the Lord has come. In mm-hmm. Greek, it literally means is present. That the day of the Lord is here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasia, the rebellion, comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So that's your abomination of desolation. Mm -hmm. And what is Paul saying? He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasia comes first and and the abomination of desolation takes place. So the question that pre-tribbers can't answer is the abomination of desolation, which occurs in the middle of that seven-year period, that has to take place before the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is tied in with the rapture. So therefore, the rapture cannot occur until after the midpoint. And that's the problem I had when I wrote the paper. I was pre-trib, but I was trying to figure out a way to put that day of the Lord in the beginning of the seven-year period, because that's where you have to have it if you're going to be raptured out before the seven-year period starts. And you can't put it at the beginning, because Paul clearly says it has to happen after the abomination of desolation. But this, this is if the day of the Lord has one meaning. But I understand that those who believe in a pre-trib position would say that it's less clear than that. Um, and they would argue of this passage that it doesn't really make sense that people would have been saying to Paul, look, we, we think we've we've missed the day of the Lord, if that day of the Lord was something really cataclysmic, because they'd look all around and be able to see that the world pretty much looks like it did before. When they're saying, oh, we, we must have missed something, then they must be saying something like, we must have missed a rapture in the sense of being taken out of this world before the great and cataclysmic day of the Lord. How do you respond to that argument? I, I'm not really sure what you're saying. I'm not, I'm not catching your point on that. Well, if the day of the Lord is this great cataclysmic thing that's going to take place, right. then how can these people be worried that they've missed it? You know, the world will be totally transformed. They couldn't possibly be worried that they'd missed that. They must be thinking, we've missed something else. So what could that something else be? Well, the obvious thing would be to say, well, it is in fact the rapture that they think they've missed the rapture that happens before a number of years before the final coming of the lord well but that's what he's correcting he's saying it can't happen before that as clear as a bell there it has to happen after the abomination of desolation and he says to them hey guys i told you this already so he had already explained this and they didn't get it And so he's trying to lay it out chronologically what has to happen. They thought they were beginning to go through the tribulation period, or they thought that the tribulation period was imminent. In fact, they were giving up their jobs. He said somewhere else in here that, you know, keep working. Some of them, I guess, had quit their work and their jobs because they thought that the tribulation was imminent, whatever. But they thought that they had missed a rapture, and he's trying to explain to them these other incidents have to happen first. I don't know if that answers your question properly, but if you look at the chronology, look at this. The pre-trib position 
holds that the entire seven-year period is God's wrath. So the seals are God's wrath. Um, but the seals are not God's wrath because you got four living creatures. They're the ones that announce the opening of the seals. On the other hand, it's the angels who blow the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Those are associated with the day of the Lord. So the seals are not God's wrath. The seals are natural disasters that are released because of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, there's no mention of God's wrath, okay, so the day of the Lord, before the opening of the sixth seal. It's only after the seven seals are opened that the trumpet judgments and the bowls of wrath are set into motion. But because pre-trippers think the seals are also part of God's wrath, um, they think they're right that we're not going to suffer God's wrath, but they don't understand that that's not God's wrath. There's no mention of the word wrath until the day of the Lord comes on the sixth seal. And what happens is when you look at Revelation, you see the sixth seal is open. Here's another thing. Okay, the fifth seal, the fifth seal, the martyrs are crying out to God, when are you going to avenge our deaths? When are you going to avenge our deaths? If God is the one that's sending that wrath, why would he send wrath on his own people? They're being martyred in the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation occurs after the abomination of desolation that we talked about. That's when Antichrist's wrath is poured out and Christians are martyred. Jesus comes back and cuts that short. He cuts it short at the rapture. Again, that happens after. That's all you have to do is look at the chronology of finding out the sixth seal is when the rapture occurs. And then go back, and it follows beautifully in Matthew 24. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. What days? Those days, the great tribulation, where they were being martyred and false Christ are rising. Then the sun will be dark and moon not give its light. And then will appear in heaven the sign of Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect. And by the word, the Greek word for gather is the same one used in Second Thessalonians. Gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And when you read a little further in the chapter, the one that you read before, it says, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. The word taken is paralambano. It's to take to oneself. It's the same word that Jesus used in John 14 when he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you unto myself, paralambano. It's the same one. So, because pre-tribbers try to say, oh, this is only meant for Jews, or you know, it's, that's really not the rapture. Of course it's the rapture. It's the same word, paralambano. This all, all occurs after the abomination of desolation. And the abomination of desolation does not occur until the middle of that week. Therefore, the rapture cannot occur before that. Wow, you're giving an awful lot of uh, material here for people to sort of listen to this podcast and make a, a Bible study out of it. It's a tremendous amount. Of, well, hopefully they can stop it, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, and then look yeah, up yeah, the yeah. verses. You know what I mean? That's what yeah. I would do. Because you're right, it is very confusing. It, it's, it is extremely complicated, isn't it? And this is one of the things I thought when I was, uh, you know, thinking about how we're we going to deal with this conversation. It is incredibly complex because, of course, we're talking about so many scriptures, and all these scriptures have their own different styles, of course, different types of writing, and it's really difficult. And, and yet they are interrelated because one author is inspired by another author and, and under the Spirit of God to write. Um, I think I need to explain kind of where I'm coming from with this. I mean, in a sense, I tend towards, um, how can I put it? I've never really thought much about the rapture at all, actually. As I said before, it's not really something that's part of the, the church tradition that I'm used to. But when I look at the 
particularly the New Testament materials, I just don't see a rapture that's separate to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, You know, when I look at what Paul talks about in the Thessalonian materials, it just strikes me as the same kind of vision and the same kind of language that I see in what Jesus teaches in his Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 and the other Gospels material that reflect Mark 13. It seems to me the same kind of vision, same kind of language. And then when somebody is trying to tell me that, in fact, no, that these are talking about two different events here, it just it's something that I don't immediately see. And so... That's what I'm trying to express, that I, I need to personally be convinced of a pre-trib rapture position, and I haven't been convinced of it. Um, I, but I haven't gone to anywhere near the detail that you have, clearly. Um, no, it's okay. You know what? It is very difficult, and I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. I would just suggest to the listeners to stop, go back, look at the verses. Um, you know, there are no scriptures that says that Jesus is coming back in secret. Rather, every eye will see him. Mark fourteen sixty two. That's where remember he stood before them, and the high priest said, "Look, just tell us plainly who are you? Are you the Christ?" And he said, "I am." And you'll see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Mm. There's no scriptures that say he's coming back in secret. Jesus is not going to come back in secret. It's going to be a monumental, sure, sure. cataclysmic sure. event. Well, what, well, yes, and there's something of that, isn't there? Say in Matthew's description of this, where you know, Jesus is saying, "Well, if somebody says to you, look in the desert, and right. the, the Christ is in the desert. Don't That's go out there.' Great point. great point. The Christ is in the inner rooms. That's uh, right. In the way somewhere. Don't go there because, in fact, this is going to be like the right. lightning across the sky. So will the Son sure. of Man. So there is that contrast. Yeah, and think about this. What does he tell them? They ask for the signs. He doesn't just start rambling into, okay, this, this, and this is going to happen. The first thing he says is, don't be deceived. Why? Because these false Christs are going to be running around. Now, think about it, what you just said. So you got these false Christs running around. Their feet are planted firmly on earth, and they're running around. He says, don't go out if they're in the wilderness. So you have to, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the rooms, do not believe it. See, they're doing everything in secret, and their feet are planted firmly on planet earth. They're false, Christ. That's how you know they're false, okay? He's going to be coming back in the clouds with power and great glory. That's how you know it's the real Christ. There's a classic example of that with the Maitreya, which a guy called Benjamin Krem has been talking about for years. I don't even know if Benjamin Krem is still with us, but he's been talking about this kind of uh, New Age Christ that's supposed to have been around for decades. And um, I don't know whether he's still saying he's going to be revealed at some point. But there's always been this question as to who is this person? Is he living in London somewhere? There are a few pictures supposedly of him. Is it really him or not? There's very much a hidden sort of thing. And this completely blows that kind of idea out of the water, doesn't it? That this is going to be a human being who's just born and goes through the normal process of growing up, you know, like Jesus did before, because then that's treating Christ like um, just an office that anybody could hold. And yet, from the biblical point of view, there's only one who can hold that office, the one who actually came before, and who's going to come back again. So, yeah, that all fits with that. I agree. Yeah, and what does Acts 1.11 say? This same Jesus you see going up is going to come back the same way. When he comes back, well, look at what Revelation says. I don't have it in front of me, but, I mean, it says, all the tribes of earth are going to mourn. All rocks fall on us because the day of their wrath has come. That's when the day of the Lord happens. It's going to be a cataclysmic thing. We all agree on this, the, the rapture passage in First Thessalonians 4.16. The Lord will send from heaven with a shout. Another version is a cry of command, voice of the archangel, um, and a trumpet blast. This is going to be a noisy event. Mm. And in my version, where it says cry of command, I was thinking about this. Well, what is the command going to be? I think it could be this. I did not read this anywhere. This is my own idea. But think about this. What did he command when he stood before Lazarus' grave? 
He said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was dead, right? He said, Lazarus, come forth. He commanded it. When he comes back at the rapture, it's a cry of command. What is he going to say? Dead, arise. There's your resurrection. It's all one event. It's not two events. I, I do tend to read it that way. Yeah. Um, let us just go more slowly over this particular passage. It's so important, isn't it? So this is First sure. Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm just, I'll am just i just read from 13 onwards here. So let's just get an idea of the language, because I'm, you know, very simplistically, I just look at the language and I'm thinking, you know, where does this tradition come from that Paul is writing here, okay, in Thessalonians? So, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Okay, that's a way of talking about those who've died believing in Christ. Um, according to the Lord's word, which is, that's an interesting thing there straight away. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, there's a lot of imagery in there. Okay, and I'm not, not trying to pick apart what that imagery means. I'm just looking at the actual language itself. Mm -hmm. um, coming down from heaven, loud command, archangel, trumpets, uh, clouds, these sorts of things. When I turn to Matthew's version of the Olivet Discourse, of Jesus teaching the Mount of Olives towards the end of his ministry, talking to the disciples, this is Matthew 24, and reading from 29 to 31. So this is Jesus. Right. This is Jesus saying... Immediately after the distress of those days, so here's the catchphrase we were talking about before, this judgment catchphrase uh, that he's using from the Old Testament. And he says, so immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call exactly. and will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. When I read those two passages side by side, I, I cannot get out of my mind that what Paul was writing there in Thessalonians is anchored in that tradition that Jesus was teaching his disciples that is recorded there in, in Matthew. I just think to myself, they're talking about the same event. And so when, as you say, the pre-tribber is telling me that Paul is talking about this rapture that happens earlier, and then Matthew's talking about Jesus is coming later on, that doesn't make sense to me. It seems to be the same thing. Well, you're absolutely right. They're both talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then even this talk about going up into what we might call that the rapture, you know, being taken up into the clouds to meet Christ – you know, this is imagery here, and a long time ago I came across the idea that this is a cultural reference to meeting a dignitary, going, it out, is. It's... going out from the city to meet somebody who's, say, a dignitary, a really important person, and welcoming them with garlands of flowers and the like, and, and all your most important people go to meet this person, and then you usher that person back into the city. And, and that seems to me why Paul is using that imagery. And those two passages surely are talking about the same kind of thing. 
Well, I think they are. I would say I do believe it will be a literal harpazo, a snatching away. Because what's going to happen is during the – when I say Great Tribulation, I'm not talking about the seven-year period. I'm talking about after what Jesus says in Matthew 24, there will be Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is not the whole seven years. The Great Tribulation starts after the abomination of desolation, which we talked about, where the Antichrist declares himself to be God. Okay? After that, it says, unless those days have been cut short, the Greek word is um, klobo, it's, it's like it means to amputate. He's going to amputate those days when he comes back in the day of the Lord. Right. And why is he coming back? Because he's going to snatch away harpazo, that's from the passage you just read, the rapture passage, right. harpazo, to snatch away. He's snatching his people literally out of harm's way right. before the day of the Lord, his wrath starts. You know, we read that passage in Matthew 20. Two will be men in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. We've already demonstrated one will be taken. It's Paralambano. He's taking them to himself, same as John 14. So he's taking the Christians Mm -hmm. out of harm's way. He takes them out and takes them to himself because he's cutting that short. He's cutting that great tribulation of the Antichrist wrath on believers. He's cutting that. See, let's tie it back with what we said before about the New World Order. The Antichrist comes to power. You can't buy or sell or do anything unless you're plugged into this system. Christians say, no, 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 sorry, I'm not taking a mark. They're martyred. They're persecuted. They're starving to death, whatever. And then you can see that in Revelation in seal number five. Because the martyrs are saying, Lord, when are you going to avenge our deaths? When does he avenge it? The next seal. It's opened up, and that's the day of the Lord. The sun's you know, darkened, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, All those celestial cluster of events that are going to happen. And then what happens? They can clearly see the day of the Lord's there. And that's where he harpazos. He snatches away his people, his church. By the way, his purified church now because they've gone through the first three and a half years, and Antichrist's great tribulation. And he snatches them away in the sixth seal before the trumpet and bowl judgment starts, his wrath. So it's a snatching away. But notice in that passage that you quoted, the dead in Christ will rise first. It's the resurrection. It's the same thing he talks about in 1 Corinthians 50. So it all fits beautifully. Why wouldn't it? Who gave the Olivet Discourse? Jesus. Who gave the revelation to John? Jesus. Right. Do you think we might think it fits? Of course it fits. <laughs> well, yes, as, as I say, I'm sitting here waiting yet to be convinced by somebody who believes in the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, please do. Maybe I should have somebody on to talk about that other view. Um, I'm, I'm sitting here waiting to see good arguments for that. And so far, I don't really. It all seems to be one thing. But now let's turn to something else. I've had a guest on the show, um, Glenn Peoples, Dr. Glenn Peoples, talking about the moral argument for the existence of God. Tremendous thinker, PhD in philosophy, and uh, it was a great conversation. Really, really interesting. However, he is a preterist. And so in his view, a lot of these things that we're talking about here have already been fulfilled in the first century. Um, And I don't know if we're going to go into this in great detail, but I think it's something that we need to address. So this would be the idea, say, that if Jesus' prophecies in the Olivet Discourse, so that's Mark 13 and the derivatives in Luke and Matthew, um, if those have been fulfilled, including associated prophecies in the New Testament to do the Antichrist, Great Tribulation, they're not going to happen, they've been fulfilled. Then we're looking at a lot of the language in Jesus' Olivet Discourse as being symbolic. Right. Okay. Now, I don't agree with this. I don't actually think it really holds water. But should we not 
at least consider the possibility that when Jesus says he's coming back on on the clouds, etc., that this is not something that is to be taken as a future prophecy, but a fulfillment of, well, what would they say? They would say that the sufferings of the time fulfill the prophecy. So you have the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. You have the abomination, as I mentioned it before, the ensigns being set up in the temple area. You have the destruction of the temple. You have people fleeing for their lives. You have a siege. You have people starving to death. Um, absolutely dreadful time, and particularly dreadful when you consider that the temple is the very place where God dwells in Jewish thinking here. Mm-hmm. And yet this is destroyed. You know, this is horrendous. And then Jesus says that, you know, by using this, imagery of the clouds and and him coming back again um that this actually is him being vindicated no that's where i think they really err it is a beautiful theory and it would solve a lot of problems wouldn't it it really would but well it would solve the problem of jesus saying and all these things the delay all these things will come to pass before this generation right this generation not exactly it would solve that problem all in one one thing with all respect to him glenn people says is that look you know we've got to take that problem seriously are we saying that jesus made a mistake here and that gets rid of that problem it does it does get rid of the problem but the problem it is then what all the stuff that they want to say as far as the abomination desolation sure it maybe it was fulfilled then look at Joel 2 where they have the locust I mean, was there a real locust that came and, and ate everything up? Yes, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to also be the locust of the trumpet judgment five. You can have more than one. So maybe, yes, all the historical things that took place at AD 70 happened. But the problem of it is Jesus doesn't just leave it there. You've got these other celestial events that are taking place. And I don't know how they get around that because the problem of it is when you've got the day of the Lord happening, that's intertwined with the other things that they want to say that took place at 8070. How do you get around? Because these celestial events have not taken place. So you got either Jesus as a false prophet or these events are in the future. So what would you say the celestial events? Are you thinking of the moon not giving its light? And yes, the day of the Lord. Yes, yeah, that's the day, the day of the Lord. Lord. Well, the point that they would make, this is a point that Glenn Peoples makes, is that this language is used of other judgment situations that are not the day of the Lord. So if you turn to Ezekiel 32, verse 7, so this is a part of a lament for the king of Egypt, this Pharaoh, and the same language is used as a judgment against just a single nation here. So let me just quote here. This is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel, right? Quote, When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. He's talking here to the king of Egypt. Um, I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you. I will bring darkness over your land, declares the sovereign Lord. You see, so there does seem to be an example of something that isn't the ultimate day of the Lord, but a more parochial judgment. Okay. The problem with, and that's fine. But mm-hmm. it's all throughout the Old Testament. It's not just one instance. Okay, so I just I just flipping through here, and I got stuff underlined. Okay, so Zephaniah, the great day of the Lord, Zephaniah 114, the great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast. Where do we hear that? First Thessalonians. And battle cry against the forty cities, against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like blind because they have sinned against the Lord 
there's other right. it's all scattered throughout but that's kind of his point isn't it it is used it's scattered throughout and it's used in context that at least one context here that doesn't refer to the final day of the lord and so their argument would be that when jesus uses similar language in the olivet discourse it doesn't necessarily mean he's referring to the final day of the lord he could be using this with respect to this terrible thing that happened to Jerusalem in AD 70. Okay. And then you have the connected symbolism mm-hmm. of the clouds about his glory and his vindication and somehow he's vindicated through this event that happens. It shows, you know, the judgment of God. Okay. Then I would say, what are they going to do with the sixth seal once it's opened? Okay, I, behold, I looked and behold, it was a great earthquake. Sun became black. So they're going to say, well, that was just, you know, if they're going to be consistent, they're going to say, well, you know, that could be interpreted as something that was just symbolic or spiritualized or whatever they want to do. Behold, it was a great earthquake. Sun became black as sackcloth. Moon became like blood. Stars, sky fell from heaven. Sky vanished up like a scroll. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, when did this happen? So please tell me when this happened. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves. When did that happen? Did that happen to AD 70? Did that happen in the Old Testament? And and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the rocks and mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? When did that happen? Well, I can't speak for them. Because <laughs> it's, not, it's not actually a view that I hold. No, I understand. Therefore, I've, I've not looked into it in that much detail. I mean, there are other things that they do bring up. Just one thing that I did think was interesting. Again, I, I don't really agree with it, but um, Jesus clearly alludes to Daniel 7. We've talked about that before. So with this vision of one like a son of man who comes before the ancient of days. He, he alludes to that when he talks about the son of man coming on the clouds in, in, in glory, etc. Um But when you go back to the Daniel passage, it seems to be that the action there is taking place in heaven, that the Son of Man is coming before God, perhaps even going up before God to receive this power and this authority. And they would argue that doesn't really fit well with the opposite motion that we see here, where the Son of Man comes down, so to speak, from heaven. So does that not suggest perhaps that this coming, in inverted commas, is not really a coming to earth, but is a vindication. If you like a coming before God to receive your status of the one who has been vindicated. Well, I think I might have an answer to that. Um, actually, Dr. Craig pointed this one out. You know, he said, when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 23 and 24, which was written before the destruction of the temple. Let me see if I can find it here. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, 24. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, which is the parousia, that's a Greek word parousia, so we know it's talking about there, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his parousia, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. So when does the end happen? I mean, that hasn't taken place yet. He has not delivered up. It hasn't already happened. It's not predators. It hasn't already happened. He's coming, and then he delivers up the kingdom to God after destroying all rule and authority. But he hasn't destroyed all rule and authority yet. That will happen at the day of the Lord. That's still in the future. Okay? And then I wrote down myself. I didn't look it up, but I remember it's Revelation eleven fifteen, where it says, The kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That has not happened yet. So you have a verse here, two verses, which connect his parousia with something that's going to happen in the future when he delivers up the kingdom to God. So if they want to say, well, that's what it is, that hasn't happened yet. And it's clear that those two verses are connected. 
the parousia, then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God. That hasn't happened yet because the day of the Lord and trumpet and bowl judgments hasn't happened. He hasn't, you know, that's why Revelation eleven fifteen says, you know, now it's happened. Now the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So that's still something in the future. And I think that really hurts their position. Yeah, and this is another reason why this is so complicated, is that there are not just one preterist view. Apparently, there are different preterist views. So Exactly. So, There's so, like four of them. That's right. So some you know? would say it's all fulfilled, and others would say parts exactly. are fulfilled, and others are not fulfilled. And so it is really, really difficult to talk about this thing. But I think it's good to have these kinds of oh, chats and, and throw these ideas out there. But your position, and I, you know, I think we have slightly different ways of interpreting the language of Scripture. Um, but nevertheless, I think much of the structure of events uh, that are going to unfold, I think pretty much we see those tweak here and there, but pretty much we do tend to see things similarly on, on that score. And certainly when we're looking at, as we come back to the beginning of our conversation, when we're looking at this shaping up of world government, what we'll call the new world order. And I, I will repeat, we don't know whether what is shaping up now is going to be that which is going to be relevant to the biblical prophecies that we've been talking about. But nevertheless, eventually something of that order, world government will shape up, that will be relevant to these prophecies, then we are looking at some form of antichrist, one who is opposed to God's purposes, who stands in the place of Christ, and strangely enough will somehow convince the whole world that he is this super important person who has a godly status before the world, which I think is a really interesting notion. How will he convince the whole world. I mean, you have Christians, you've got atheists, you've got agnostics, you've got Jews, you've got Muslims, you've got Hindus. It's obviously not everybody's going to be convinced, but nevertheless, it's going to be significantly impactful to the world. It's curious how somebody could do that, but that seems to be what is in view. And you and I would both agree, and I've not seen any reason personally to think otherwise, that Christians are going to be experiencing in the future, our brothers and sisters in Christ are going to be experiencing this situation, at least for a short period of time before Christ returns. But what you were saying in the book is that if we are not thinking straight, if we don't believe in absolute truths, if we think there is a truth for me and a truth for you, that absolutely undercuts all right. of this. Because if we can't think straight, how can we even begin to work through this prophetic material? How can we even begin to see a deception when it comes our way? I can see, you know, your warning is really very important for us. In a sense, whatever view of prophecy you have, right. you know, because there are deceptions on the way to this even if you do believe in a pre-tribulation rapture there are deceptions on the way leading to that and the more and more we allow ourselves to imbibe this spirit of the age the less we will be able to see those deceptions coming so i think your book is very important in so many ways i'm so glad that we've had this series of interviews about it can i put a bow on the pre-trib thing yeah do just to backtrack just for one second and uh, because you've summarized everything perfectly and and i think it's wonderful what you just said though about the deception even if you believe in the pre-trib view and you're absolutely right we all should be looking at these things as the end of the age draws near i just want to say this to my pre-trib friends out there again as i was a pre-trib jesus said don't be deceived the apostle paul in second thessalonians he told the thessalonians don't be deceived and the catch is there's gonna be enough deception going on without without us getting our eschatology wrong and if you believe that you're going to be raptured out of here 
you're not going to see the Antichrist. And it turns out that your position in pre-trib is wrong. And all of a sudden, this Antichrist signs this pact, and you think, well, this can't be the Antichrist because we would be raptured already. You are setting yourself up for deception or your kids when you're not here anymore or your grandchildren because they'll say, well, dad said, you know, this can't be the Antichrist because we'd be raptured already. This could be a deception in itself. you got to realize the devil is going to get his foot in the door any way he can. If we have our theology wrong, wherever I have my theology wrong, wherever I have my eschatology wrong, he's going to get his foot in the door there. And so we're going to have to be facing enough tribulation and deception as it is. Let's try to at least get the basics correct. And if you believe you're not going to be here for the Antichrist and for the great tri- his tribulation on us, you're not going to be spiritually or physically prepared to go through that, or your children won't. And you'll be setting yourself up for deceptions because there's going to be all these false Christ walking around the planet. So I just implore pre-tribbers, look at Revelation 6, see how it lines up with Matthew 24. No, he wasn't just talking to Jews because he told everybody to go out and do the Great Commission. He wasn't just talking to Jews then. And then just compare those two, Matthew 24, Revelation 6, with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I promise you, you will come and find out that the pre-trib position is wrong. It's just so very important. Well, there, there is a Bible study for us. You've said it for us. <laughs> can, I just, can, I, can I just slightly reword what you say, that we shouldn't get our theology wrong on this? I'm going to say it the other way around. Let's not be too committed to the belief that we've got everything right about these kinds of things that are not the essence of our faith. There are some things that are the essence, the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he died for our sins, the, the right. incarnation, etc. These, right. the, these are the essence of our faith, and we, we must not get those wrong, right. of course. But with things like this, I think there's something to be said for actually holding these kinds of things more tentatively. Right. We're obviously going to have opinions. But it could turn out that you and I are wrong. <laughs> and it could turn out that our other friends who think different things are, are wrong. But if we're not absolutely committed to a position on this kind of thing, then we are going to be open, I think, to the events when they unfold. Mm-hmm. And we might therefore see an event and say, well, actually, I have some knowledge of a different view of eschatology. Right. And actually what's happening now fits better with what I thought was false before but at least i knew about it and i can change my mind if we're absolutely fixed if we have churches that teach just one thing on these peripheral issues i think that could actually be dangerous in itself so perhaps this is a call for and to me as well because i admit to you you know and i think it's probably obvious from the conversation that i'm no specialist on this area at all and i should know more about it and i think we should all know more about different views sure Be Bereans, be Bereans. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and and that's what the beautiful part about your podcast is that, like I said, it's scholarly. We can look at things. I mean, I'm just saying you, me, but myself and the listeners, and disagree. And and, but let's go back and and check things with Scripture. And at least we're bringing it in your podcast, and you're you're providing a service here. You're bringing it to people's attention because, as you said, we all agree. Your position, my position, pre-trib, whatever, we all agree. It looks like we're heading to the end. And there's nothing wrong with going in and checking our Bibles and and getting a different perspective on it. Even if we disagree on stuff, that's okay. We're at least in there checking it. And you know, the Lord is honored by that. He wants us to look in his word. He wants us to look at the book of Revelation. He says, you you know, you get a special blessing for reading it. So he's honored when we go and and look at these things, as long as we're doing it in a respectful, loving manner. Absolutely. And so there's a, a call to say, look, please do not email me and say, oh, you know, you're teaching wrong doctrine, et cetera. No, no, please, please. 
please. That, that's certainly from my point of view. I'm not trying to do that by having this kind of conversation. I'm exploring ideas, and I will probably explore different approaches to this in future. As with a number of the subjects of the podcast, I do hope to explore more different approaches. So I'm just saying that to uh, to forestall the uh, the evils that might come <laughs> my way. But I know there are you know at least two or three hot characters out there who might say, "Ah, you naughty person, fancy talking about that subject in that way." Well, it's my <laughs> position, so don't send Julian emails. It's my position. It's, you know, the thing of it is we're looking at different positions and there's nothing wrong with that. No, absolutely. So look, just before we close, let's turn back to your book, which we've talked about now for three interviews. And I know this is impossible, really, isn't it? Just to sum stuff up. But if you could just sum up what you're really trying to say through this whole book not just the conversation we've had today but the whole book just a right. kind of paragraph that is the the heart of what it is you really want to share with people not just for the sake of you know i'm saying people get the book and read it it's, it's a great book but, but not really for that but right. what is in your heart what you want to share with people what would you summarize it as i think we are heading towards the end of the age and in my book what i try to do is show how we got where we got and and julie and i have gone over that uh, in the first two interviews, how how did we get here? I spend some time showing where we're at, but I'm really concerned about where we're going in light of the fact that we've lost the notion of truth. It doesn't matter whether it's the United States or, or Britain or whatever. We're becoming secularized. We're becoming post-Christian. We're setting ourselves up for deception. I'm very concerned that the generations coming up behind us have no conception of what truth is. And I think we are setting ourselves up for the deception at the end of the age if we don't know what truth is. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I have the truth. He said, I am the truth. People don't want to hear things that are exclusive anymore. It's where we didn't go over this today, but like ecumenism, where, you know, all these religions are they're all going to combine. Everything's going to be the same. You know, like you said before, Julian, you know, the Christ is just going to be an office that you can take mm. over. You know, that's what the New Agers want us to believe. We've got yeah. all these exceptions from different angles. Which, by the way, if the Lord allows me to, a couple books from now, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out all the deceptions that are coming our way. There's you know, at least 10 or 11 of them that you can categorize. This is where my heart is. We've got to be prepared as Christians for where this is heading. And we need to start warning people of where they're heading. And, and, and what does Julian do in his podcast? Renew your mind. And when Paul says, I beseech you, he's begging them to renew your mind. Okay, Because we are heading for an apocalypse. We've got to start sharing truth with the generations that are coming up behind us because what if this does go on for a while and we're not here? We want to make sure that Christians have their eschatology straight. Uh, we want to warn non-Christians that it doesn't matter what this new world order is. It's about Jesus Christ. And let me let me say this as kindly as I can. If, if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian and yet you're fighting the new world order, there's nothing that the devil wants more than to have you think you're on the winning side when you're on the losing side. That's great that you're fighting the new world order, but provide a moral justification for doing that when, if God doesn't exist. There is no moral justification. These people think they're better than you and smarter than you. They don't give God a lick of thought. They're seculars through and through. They're autonomous. They don't make themselves accountable to God. They're going to corral us into their new world order because they don't give God a lick of thought. 
they think that we're just cattle. We're not cattle. We're made in God's image. We're equal. And God provided a way out for humanity and it's through Jesus Christ. And I just want to encourage people who are listening to this who maybe are not Christians. Again, this is not something you just have to go ahead and take on faith. Look at the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and then make your mind up. And we need to start warning the generations behind us of what's coming that's what's in my heart. And, and to be a success is not about having a great job or, you know, riches and stuff. But that's what these secularists think. They think they're just going to impose their power on us and think that's not success. Success is finding out what God's will for your life is. He loves you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you. He has a plan for your life. And it's finding out what that plan is and then jumping right smack dab in the middle of it and carrying it out. That's what a success is. And we just need to warn the generations coming up behind us of the perils that are heading our way. That's where my heart is. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic, Tom. Thank you ever so much for sharing this series of interviews with us and for writing that excellent book. Please, folks, if you've not read it, do read the book. I think it is an excellent book. And I really look forward to your next one, Tom. And when you've finished it, I really hope you will come and speak about it on this show. I'd be happy to. And thank you for your generosity. And thank you for all three interviews. I totally enjoyed it. And thank you to the listeners for listening to me. I I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, that brings to a close this short series of interviews with Tom Gailey on his book. I hope you enjoyed the conversations. I certainly have. And I'll say again, if you haven't heard the other two earlier interviews with Tom, then do please go back and check those out, because each of these three has been very different, actually. Uh, Related, of course, but really quite different in content. So I do recommend everyone to hear all three. And as I say, do consider getting a copy of Tom's book. As I speak, it's only a little over £5, a little over $7 on Kindle. And in my view, it's worth every penny, even if you don't agree with everything that's in it. And, uh, you know, let's face it, how often does one read a book in which one does agree with everything that's in it? It's pretty rare. But even if there are points of disagreement, it is packed with research, it is packed with insight, and as I've said a number of times, it is eminently readable, so it is highly recommended by me. And let me repeat, because I know we have touched on some controversial matters in that last conversation, and there may well be some people who feel we didn't deal with various matters well enough. You know, perhaps I could have defended the preterist position better, or I, I just didn't put the best arguments for the pre-trib rapture, etc., etc. Well, yes, that may be so. It may indeed be so. And as I said to Tom, I am no expert in this, and I'm not 100% committed to any particular theory on eschatology either. I just go with what seems to me to fit what I read in scripture. But I may be wrong. So if anyone wants to get in touch with either Tom or me to agree or disagree, then please do. But you know, if you do disagree, please do so in a constructive manner. I will note, by the way, that since recording that conversation with Tom, I've come across a very interesting podcast by Mike Heiser from his Naked Bible podcast series on the subject of eschatology, and it's not an area that he talks about very much. But it's interesting because in that podcast, he expands on something that Tom mentioned almost in passing, really, in our conversation, that prophecy can have more than one fulfillment. And what Dr. Heiser does in that particular podcast is uh, to explain how the biblical paradigm of already but not yet, you know, the idea in the New Testament that the kingdom of God is already here in the teaching and preaching of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, but it's not yet here 
in the sense that the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. That's in the future. And Dr. Heiser makes the case that that paradigm of the already but not yet fits neatly with the concept of prophecies having multiple fulfillments. So, you know, a prophecy might be fulfilled already in that certain events have already happened that are sufficient to fulfill it, but it's not yet fulfilled exhaustively because there may well be future events that that prophecy is also intended to cover. And he applies that to the Olivet Discourse that we've been talking about in this program, which means that maybe both the preterist and the futurist, if that's a word, the non-preterist, both may be right. Maybe Jesus' prophecies have already been fulfilled to an extent in the first century, but not yet fulfilled in their fullness because there is a future dimension yet to come. Fascinating stuff. So do check that out uh, as a kind of, you know, an extra dimension to the chat that we've had here today. And you'll find that at nakedbiblepodcast.com. And uh, it's podcast number 101. So that's really easy to remember. Nakedbiblepodcast.com, podcast number 101. Next week, we'll be speaking with the philosopher Dr. Mitch Stokes about his intriguingly titled book, How to Be an Atheist. And uh, as I think I mentioned before, he studied with Alvin Plantinga, so I'm really looking forward to that. And I've noticed in reading the book that Alvin Plantinga's sense of humour has clearly rubbed off on Mitch Stokes. And then we'll be going into the summer holidays. So as, as I say, each year, things will be getting unpredictable. So... That will have implications for the podcast. It means that podcasts will be a bit erratic, or even more erratic than usual, uh, during August and into early September. So apologies in advance for that. But there should be some TMR output during that time. I have at least a couple of things in the pipeline for August, and, and maybe more, who knows. So please do keep checking in. I'm also expecting to, at some point, update the website which I'm even more nervous about than that hosting shift that happened (laughs) uh, a couple of months ago. But a website upgrade really does have to happen. I'm expecting it to be rather problematic, but I've got to do it sometime or other, and the summer seems the best time to try. So, as I said before, TMR might go offline for a bit, but that's just going to be a temporary matter. Anyway, I'll have a bit more to say next week. So for now, thanks again to the handful of you who have kindly supported the show with comments and ratings on iTunes. I have noticed. I very much appreciate that. Thanks for doing that. So anyway, until next week, take care. The Lord be with you. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles of the mindrenewed.com. And I look forward to speaking to you again in that very near future. <laughs>